I say to my students sometimes, if you really want to make a lot of money and have everything go your way, whose job do you want? You know, Donald Trump's or Jeff Bezos's? <laughs> what are you going to do? Become a congressman where you have to work with hundreds of other people or a CEO? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Susan McWilliams Barnt, is chair of the department and professor of political science at Pomona College. We talked about her career and about current American politics, including what you can learn about our politics and political thought by close reading of great works in the road trip literature. Susan is a very thoughtful and interesting person. You should know her work. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Susan McWilliams Barnt of Pomona College. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Susan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm sure. My name is Susan McWilliams Barnt, and I'm the chair and professor of politics at Pomona College, which is a small liberal arts college in Claremont, California. I'm a native of small town New Jersey, and I've been at Pomona now for 15 years. One thing I know about you is that the profession of being a political science teacher, professor, comes from your family a little bit. True. The The last name that I was born with, McWilliams, conveyed with it a sense of political identity dating back several generations. Uh, my father, as you know, was a longtime political science professor at Rutgers University. Uh, my grandfather, Kerry McWilliams, was the editor of The Nation magazine. His father, Jerry McWilliams, was a Democratic state senator in Colorado. And his father, Samuel McWilliams, fought in the Civil War. So I, I think I grew up with both a sense of identity and to some extent a sense of obligation, a political obligation tied to having the last name that I had. So you were unable to escape the gravity of that uh, profession? Then? <laughs> I tried. I thought at various moments, as everyone does, that maybe I would do something different. But everything that I really was attracted to and found myself gravitating toward ended up circling around politics. And so I didn't land uh, too far from the tree. Yeah. Amherst is a good place to start an education. Speaking of small liberal arts colleges, how did that help put you on that path? Well, I should say in general, I'm a passionate advocate for small liberal arts colleges. I think they're the best thing going in American higher education and the best thing going in higher education in the world. One of the things I'm concerned about 
politically right now is that many of those schools are closing, both due to the coronavirus pandemic, but due to forces that were in play long before the coronavirus pandemic took over. I went to Amherst because I wanted to go to a small place. I wanted to go to a place where I could explore all of my many different interests. And I had many at that point in time. And to be in a place where I would be challenged and pressed and meet people from different places, but also where I would be recognized uh, and where I would feel like I mattered. And uh, I love my time at Amherst. I'm to this day very grateful for uh, the education I got there and the people that I met there. Was there anything in the study of politics there that, that caught your attention particularly? In fact, there was. Like I said, I hadn't started out intending to be a political science major. I started out as a Russian and music major. But in my sophomore year, I took a course with a man named Hadley Arcus, who probably most listeners of this podcast don't know because he's one of the most far-right social conservative thinkers in this country, committed to principles of conservative natural law jurisprudence. I didn't agree with almost any of his opinions about political matters, but I recognized that he was brilliant and he was a captivating lecturer. And his presence really hooked me back into the study of politics um, and thinking about first principles and arguing from first principles. Uh, One of the things that I do think is sad for many students is that there aren't as many first-rate conservative scholars on campuses as there used to be. Though I don't consider myself anywhere near um, the right wing, what really drew me into the study of politics was being able to study with um, and learn from somebody whose superficial political beliefs were very different from mine. And he was in a department where there was a real range of political opinion and political thought. And I, as a student, benefited from exposure to so many different kinds of ideas there. I'm not a conservative, but there's a lot of value to conservative thought. And it certainly ought to be part of an education, right? Mm -hmm. I also think it's, especially in this age where we do so many things on screens, there's a real value to the flesh and blood exchange of ideas with people who think differently than you do. We chase that in higher education, but uh, that often falls short. I remember talking to a student of mine, a very left-wing activist student, and she said, I I hear what you say in class about how I should seek out people who think differently from me about politics, you know, conservative students, but I don't know where to find them. (laughs) And I felt sorry for her. She really earnestly wanted to have certain kinds of conversations and she couldn't figure out how to get there. That is, I think, something that I I do so value and I think really was core to the turn I took, um, not just back toward the study of politics, but uh, toward uh, political thought in general. I listened to the convocation speech you gave in, I think, 2018 about getting education in the arts of liberty, among other things. I was very moved by it. I thought it was very, it was really on point. And, you know, I wonder how you connect how you think now about liberal arts education with what you were thinking then and how you trace that growth in yourself. I think that like a lot of Americans, my default setting was to assume that liberty is you being allowed to do whatever it is that you want to do whenever it is that you want to do it. 
I went to college like many people went to college with a lot of enthusiasm for not being under the thumb of my parents and being able to stay up as late as I want and being able to do what I want and not have to answer to anybody. I think that's an important step into a more considered development of what liberty is as I've gotten older and thought more about politics and uh, become a professor sort of central to my own thinking has been the realization and how faulty that kind of understanding of what liberty is, that Americans love the idea of liberty, but get liberty wrong consistently. Liberty, I think, is a kind of discipline. It's a kind of art. We're not necessarily born um, knowing how to be free. I think we have to learn that. I think we have to learn that in community with other people. And so part of what I really value about teaching at a liberal arts college is that central to our mission is the idea that there are arts of liberty, arts of communication, interaction uh, with people who are different from you in background and thought, and that you have to cultivate those if you want to be a truly free person. Um, and just doing whatever you want the second you want to do it isn't actually being free. It's being enslaved to whatever feeling you're having at the moment. I recently read a book called A Libertarian Ran Into a Bear, uh, which my brother gave me. That's a I saw it on book. a I, I saw it on the list of recommended reading that you put up on Constitutionalist also, which is why I bring it up. And that book is about a community in uh, Grafton, New Hampshire, that a lot of libertarians came to to try to be free in a in a way that they conceived of it and ran into trouble. Feels right on that theme, doesn't it? It does. One of my favorite authors, Bertrand de Juvenel, said something at one point in time like, most modern understandings of liberalism are so clearly written by childless men who have forgotten their own childhoods. Part of what I was struck by in that book is that it, this libertarian community is disproportionately populated by single childless men. And I think that some of the more extreme understandings of American liberty really neglect the fact that we're not born as individuals. We're born into relationships. We're born dependent on other people. We can't be fully realized as ourselves if we don't have people around to love us and to love back in turn. Um, we can't be fully ourselves. We can't take care of ourselves entirely from the day we're born to the day we die. And part of what I think the most extreme variants of libertarianism tend to neglect is the extent to which we do need each other. We do need to exist in, in communities. And part of what I think makes that book both in some ways tragic and also comic, the tragic and comic never being that far from each other, is that you see this earnest attempt to achieve a kind of community by people who deny in some ways the basis of what makes for a good community. And the running into a bear part is some of them want to feed bears because they're free to do that. And the bears then start to encroach and even attack in rare cases people. And they don't know how to do the normal forms of collective action because they don't, they don't want to work through existing government to do it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we all understand that impulse. One of the things that's important to me is just trying to access the parts of my own brain that are sympathetic to 
people who I disagree with. And I, I think we all have that part of our ourselves who don't want to be told what to do, don't really want to have to work with other people, don't want anybody to step on our toes. And I'm, I'm so sympathetic to that. And yet when bears are murdering all the cats in your neighborhood, you do need to work together with other people to stop it, or you're going to end up with, you know, many fewer cats and many more bears. You went on to Princeton to get a master's and a PhD in politics. Why? Well, uh, the truth is that after graduating Amherst, I had done what I think many children of Gen X did, which was to go into management consulting. It's what everybody around me was doing. It seemed like the easy thing to do. It seemed like uh, the next thing to do. And and I hated it. It was not a good fit for me. The people who worked there were lovely and smart and interesting. And I had absolutely no passion for what we were doing, which was mostly selling confidence to companies to make decisions that they'd already decided to make. So I decided to take a turn toward politics. And I did two things, being somewhat torn between politics in practice and politics in school. I uh, applied for political campaigning jobs and I applied to graduate school. I ended up getting first a job running political campaigns in my home county and then a job uh, working as the legislative assistant to two of New Jersey's uh, Democratic assemblymen. And I loved that job. And I think had I not applied to grad school before I started that job, I probably would still be in that kind of work. But a few months into that job, I got accepted into graduate school and had to make a decision. And the decision I made was, well, uh, Princeton's going to pay for you uh, to study politics for two years and get a master's degree. And if you do that and don't like the academy, well, then you can go back into working in, quote unquote, real politics. And I think I really thought that that's probably what I was going to do. But I ended up during my first summer in graduate school teaching at a public high school summer program called the New Jersey Governor's School for Public Issues. And I fell in love with the teaching and I thought this is what I want to keep doing. So that's sort of the story of how I got to Princeton and how I ended up staying at Princeton, which for a long time was a pretty dicey proposition. Do you think that the model of teaching in the family played a lot into that? I mean, there are a lot of people that go on to be professors who are into the research, but not into the teaching. And then there are people who are really into the teaching and it seems like it's in the bones. I know, you know, for my mother, it was as a math teacher and for my dad, maybe less so, even though he, he was a literature professor. I, I think so. I, I mean, I did just feel a sense of calling as soon as I started teaching in that program, like, oh, these are the people I need to be with. I, this is what I need to be doing. I had grown up with a father who was, by all accounts, an extraordinary teacher and have so many memories as a child of doing something like eating at a restaurant with him and having someone run up and say, you don't remember me, but I sat in your freshman lecture course on politics in 1972 and you changed my life and now I'm a city councilman in X small town in upstate New York. So I think I had a, not just the kind of teaching in the bones, but early on the recognition that um, although teachers aren't really given, accorded a place of great power in the society in the most formal ways, teachers have incredible power to serve the public uh, and to shape civic life and to transform 
politics over the long term, maybe even more power than legislators. I have two former students right now who are running for city council in New York. I'm not going to take credit for their moves, but I think of all the students I've had who I've been able to encourage in the study of politics and That's something that I think I was seeking when I moved toward teaching, wanting to impact other people's lives and the Republican positive ways. So it sounds like it probably wasn't that hard a decision to go from a master's into a PhD program. Is that right? No, by by that point in time, I had been teaching and knew that I liked both the teaching part and the writing part. Um, I had also seriously considered journalism at one point in time. And part of what I like about being a professor is that even though there can be pressures to be highly specialized, we really have a lot of room to move, at least if we are tenured, in terms of having time to tend to teaching and to thinking and to uh, public service and to community service and to our families for that matter. I guess you did a dissertation on travel and political knowledge. How did you come to that as a topic? Well, I got interested by the idea that our word theory um, comes from the Greek word theoria, which wasn't what we think of when we think of theory. It was an official political practice that some ancient Greek city-states had where they would appoint a person called the theoros, whose only job it was was to travel around the then world as known to them, and then come back and report on what they'd seen, you know, what religious festivals they've seen, what rules other city-states used. And the Greeks had this idea that through this officially sanctioned practice of travel, one could gain truer political knowledge. Uh, And over time, that transformed into our own more armchair understanding of what theory is. But I was really excited both by the idea that good political thought and theory isn't divorced from practice and politics as it exists in the real world, but also by the idea that travel itself was a kind of practice that could be politically enriching. That, I think, lined up with my own experience in the world. I ended up writing about the many ways, and I think the many underappreciated ways in which travel stories has shaped political knowledge over the last 2,500 years. How did you land at uh, Pomona? The short version is that I knew I wanted to teach at a small liberal arts college, and I got really, really lucky. Um, Pomona was the school that I dreamed of teaching at, and uh, the stars aligned, and there was a job, and I got it. I feel extraordinarily fortunate to teach at Pomona. It's an exceptional school, and the students are exceptional. I've just felt lucky to walk into my office um, when I've been able to walk into my office every day for the last 15 years. Is it different to teach in the time of Trump than it was before him? Absolutely, it's different to teach in the time of Trump. Um, First of all, we have many more students interested in politics now than we did four years ago. We call it the Trump bump in terms of majors. Um, To give you uh, some hard numbers there, we had about 25 majors, politics majors in every graduating class up to Trump's inauguration, and now we have about 40. And I also think that I have a lot more students who are who get really excited about classic political works that are raising big picture questions about politics. Uh, Books like Plato's Republic uh, that talk about 
the ways in which democratic societies can fall into tyranny. That wasn't something that for perhaps unfortunately obvious reasons my students were as interested in five or six years ago. They were mostly interested in how to work within a system that they took to be fairly stable and predictable. In this time of relative political unpredictability, I see in my students much more excitement about these classic texts that talk about the underlying instability of all political regimes. It makes all kinds of sense. I read a book that you wrote about the road trip and American political thought. It must be connected in some way to the dissertation, but also to a class you taught there. I've been for a kind of a walker for a bunch of years and and read a lot in the walking literature. And there's something about taking on a topic like that, which isn't an obvious one in the political science department and and applying political theory to it that's really interesting. But tell me about why you wrote that and, and what you got out of it. Uh, well, there are a few things that are really important to me as somebody who's a political scientist. One is that I think it's the job of political theorists to remind people in my profession and people beyond it, that politics isn't just institutions and forms and elections and rules and vote counting. Uh, politics is about ideas. As the really great scholar at Princeton, Eddie Glaub, says, the imagination is the battleground of politics and how we think about ideas and how we imagine possibilities matters. It matters for everything. Um, and so part of what I'm interested in general is thinking about where political ideas, foundational political ideas have developed in American politics. I'm also really interested as a political scientist in giving voice to those Americans who have thought seriously about politics, but for various institutional and historical reasons, haven't had access to PhD programs in political science. And one of the things I like about road trip stories is that from the very first road trip stories we have in the United States, there's a real diversity of thoughtful voices there. The Probably the first road trip story we know of is by a woman named Miss Sarah Kendall Knight. And so part of why I like road trip stories is it brings more voices into the conversation about how Americans really think about politics. I also, to be honest, I like road trips. I like driving around and I like thinking about that sort of particularly American form of travel where in driving around, we're noting the differences between places, but also seeing the kind of commonalities uh, among ourselves. Part of thinking about who has been able to travel and under what terms people have been able to travel is really indicative of broader inequalities and difficulties in our society. We were talking about liberty before, and the ability to travel around in some ways is the signal gesture of being free. Part of what I wanted to explore in that book, too, was, of course, the ways in which so many Americans have been denied freedom of movement uh, in so many different ways across the years. The way you put the book together, you read road trip literature, both fiction and nonfiction, and kind of thought about it a lot. I'm interested in what is your process for picking the pieces that you pick to, to talk about and for turning them into the kind of work that came about. Tell me how you do that. Well, I think the honest answer is, is that I love to read books and I read a lot of books. And 
there are books that stay with me because even if I'm not quite sure they're challenging me or they're confronting me or, or um, they're transforming the way I think. And I guess when I worked on that book, I made lists and lists of travel stories and tried to think about what they had in common and what questions they raised about American politics. And as I say to my students often, um, when they're thinking about writing papers, usually their instinct about what they want to write about is a good one. And most of their job is to interrogate their own instinct, to ask the question, why is this interesting to me? Why does this one line in this book stick inside my head? Is it because I really agree with it? Is it because I really don't agree with it? Is it because it explodes my whole way of thinking? Those are, the, I guess, unconsciously the kinds of questions that I ask myself but really, I, I would love to claim to have some kind of five-step method, but I think mostly it's uh, just the joy of reading books and thinking about them. Well, what do road trips say about American politics? It's a complicated story, right? It, it's a complicated story. Roads are really important to the history of American politics. In the Federalist Papers, even before we get into the famous stuff about separations of powers and checks and balances... Publius says, we're going to have really good roads and roads are going to be the thing that enable us to govern in this nation of really vast geographical expanse and religious, cultural, ethnic, uh, you know, political, regional, geographic diversity, because it's going to enable people from those different places to travel back and forth, both to a national capital and, you know, to have um, dealings with each other. So I got interested in the way that roads as a kind of physical form of political infrastructure um, are attached so early on to the Federalists' hopes, at least, for the nation. I don't think, though, that the story that road trips tell about Americans is a kind of kumbaya story at all. In fact, much to the contrary. I think some of the most celebrated road trip stories, like, say, Jack Kerouac's On the Road or Walt Whitman's Song of the Open Road, are actually in some ways very tragic lamentations about the inability of Americans to ever feel fully at home in America. And I think that lots of the travel stories we read, like Mark Twain's Huck Finn, are about the ways in which our ability to have so much mobility in this country has led to violence, charlatanism. I write a little bit, as you know, about Solomon Northrop's 12 Years a Slave. And of course, Rhodes facilitated not just a kind of happy dandy form of you know, intercourse between states, but also facilitated uh, the slave trade um, and kidnapping. Part of what I really want to explore in that book is if roads in some ways are the great metaphor for American freedom, and if roads were so integral to the constitutional framers vision of how the nation would work, do road trip stories bear out those highest expectations? And I think the answer is fairly mixed. A lot of times people go on a road trip because they are discontented, because they want to leave behind trouble like in Wild that you also cite. Do you think that you could conceive of the detour we took with Trump as a road trip? 
to explore a different way of governance? And if if we were using that lens, how would you think about the four years of having him as president? That's a really neat question. It's hard for me to answer because I I think it minimizes the seriousness of Trump uh, to think of him as a detour rather than perhaps a destination that we've been heading toward for some time. And I should say that I've long been convinced that Trump is not the creator of Trumpism. What we call Trumpism existed prior to and will last um, far after Trump. He is a co-creator of it, for sure. I mean, I've heard a lot of people say he's a symptom, not the problem. I think he's both. Well, true. One can be both a symptom and and a problem, right? Pneumonia is a symptom of coronavirus, but it's also a serious problem, right? I do incline, because I am a political scientist, to see um, all of the structures that enable Trump to come to power. I mean, one way that I think about that, um, and I'm taking this from Dan Zyblatt and Steve Levitsky's book, um, How Democracies Die, there's been fairly consistent support for authoritarians in 20th century, throughout the 20th century, as long as we've been polling such things, support for people like McCarthy or Father Coughlin. But what Trump had that they didn't have was a Republican Party that was already so desiccated that he was able to hijack it. He's an actor there. The individual decisions of individual people matter greatly in politics. And that's one of the things that I do think Trump I think helpfully reminds us individual people matter even in a nation of 325 million people. But at the same time, right, there were structures in place that enabled him, formal political structures and informal political structures that enabled him to do what he has done. And some of those structures were ideas, right? A lot of people I talk to on the left can't understand his followers. It's beyond comprehension, why you can't see through his bigotry and his dishonesty and narcissism and all, and all those qualities. But he is connecting two elements of the idea space that we have in this country for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote when Trump was first elected that the Trump followers reminded me a lot of the way that Hunter S. Thompson writes about the Hell's Angels in the 1960s. And Thompson really saw the Hell's Angels not as just a kind of motorcycle gang with salacious activities to write about, but as the vanguard for a new style of right-wing politics um, that, as uh, Thompson put it, was premised on the ethic of total retaliation, that people who had given up or thought they had given up a lot for the society. Um, The Hells Angels were predominantly military vets um, who found themselves increasingly isolated and cast aside in an increasingly technical society with an elite class that effectively signaled to them over and over again that they don't matter, that they weren't necessary, that at best what they should do is just take some handouts and be quiet. Thompson writes very powerfully about the kind of rage that that patronization inspires. And Trump is absolutely good at harnessing that energy. 
By the way, Trump had a lot of good practice, too, in terms of his career. People forget this part of his life. But in terms of his career in uh, professional wrestling, right? professional wrestling has been the pop cultural forum that has articulated that kind of grievance and rage and, by the way, flirted with violence consistently for 20 or 30 years. Um, Trump is in the WWE Hall of Fame for a reason. Uh, this is very much the kind of professional wrestling presidency. And he is tapping into that audience. And, and I had a guest on recently who has a whole book about Trump and professional wrestling, Trump and the kayfabe presidency, which, which makes that connection. What's a little weird to me, maybe you can help me understand it, is that these hell's angels who are wanting to be for freedom and individuality are finding themselves in alliance, though, with the police and the military rather than you know, the countercultural left, say. And a lot of people who are, who are extremely strong individualistic supporters of the Republican Party are following Trump there. Why is it that you follow an authoritarian leader and want to be part of his crowd if you're an individual like that? Well, those are sort of two interesting questions. Um, to the first, I'd say it's first of all natural that people who are predominantly less educated, not college educated, are to the extent they're sympathetic to any authority figure are going to be uh, sympathetic to the military and police because the military and police are the occupants of the, one of the only professional classes to which they can imagine themselves being a part and, you know, whose authority is premised on brute force rather than years of refined education. As to the second question, I think this gets back to that issue of how Americans think about liberty and community. It really is striking to me how many of the same people who really want to insist upon their independence, their freedom, their disconnection for others, their lack of responsibility for other people are simultaneously longing to be part of something that is bigger than themselves. And in some ways, I think the extreme libertarianism uh, becomes counteracted or sort of balanced out by this extreme desire to be part of some huge crowd. They're both immoderate positions, um, but I think they're immoderate positions that come from maybe in some ways just the inability to acknowledge or the refusal to acknowledge our mutual obligation and the fact that we do need other people uh, to fully realize ourselves in the world. I wonder how you've been thinking about this post-election period the very loud claims that voter fraud took place, the investigations of it, the various different routes that the president has taken to try to overturn the election leading up to the so-called insurrection. What have you been thinking as a political theorist about this time? Well, I've certainly been thinking that it's a dangerous political time. Uh, one of the formative political experiences of my life was being in the Soviet Union in July of 1991. And we flew back to the United States. And a few weeks later, there was no more Soviet Union. It had looked like a perfectly functioning state. We were followed around by the KGB. We went to military offices uh, one month and the next month it was gone. So I'm highly attuned to the ways in which things can look like they're going fine and then all of a sudden they're not. And so some of some of what I've been thinking about is 
how I think that truth about politics, that enduring truth about politics is something that Americans insufficiently understand. I'm frustrated, I get frustrated, certainly with actors on the right and with actors on the left whose actions in so many different ways um, seem to deny the fragility of political order, um, especially in a nation so big and unwieldy and diverse. As I've said to some of my students, what's especially sad about this is how predictable it was. And how, though many smart people saw this coming, there was really no way to stop it. Or to the extent there were ways to stop it, we didn't do it. Well, if this is predictable, what would you predict is next? Political scientists are not always the best at prediction. But what I would tell people to look for is, are there consequences um, and meaningful consequences for um, the incitement of anti-constitutional violence? I think there have to be punishments. There have to be consequences. Um, is there meaningful reform to uh, democratic practice and structure undertaken? Um, that is, are there earnest attempts to address some of the structural issues that allowed Trump to hijack the country pursued? One measure that I think would be kind of interesting to think about is, are there any moves toward constitutional amendment? One of the great young scholars in political science, Sean Beinberg, has recently written a book about prohibition. And one of the things that he says in that book that I've been thinking about during this time period is, even when moves to amend the Constitution aren't successful, they're really important for national civic education because they remind people of something that we forget all the time in our deference to the Supreme Court and to lawmakers, which is that the Constitution is ultimately entrusted to the care of the American people. And we do have the capacity to amend it and change it. And in moments of political crisis, to try to fix it if there are structural things that we find to be wanting. Do you have an amendment in mind of reform that you think goes to the problem that has been shown? Uh, I don't have any particular amendment in mind, in part because I'm mindful of the fact that in practice, amendments, uh, you know, are not likely to pass given the diversity of the country. Um, I, of course, would be interested in any kind of amendment that would undo the train of Supreme Court jurisprudence, starting with about Buckley versus Vallejo, going through Citizens United um, more recently, um, that treat money as speech in American politics. I really have never understood why if money is speech, then bribery isn't persuasion. I think that as I've written for the Constitutionalist recently, there are lots of arguments that addressing the issue of money in politics, which is a very popular issue across the American political spectrum, uh, would be something that would shore up the democracy in uh, the constitutional system. I mean, one of the things you wrote on the Constitutionalist was maybe we should make the presidency or public office less appealing to this type of person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that you see written about in early American political thought, the founders really wrestled with the problem of ambitious people. They were really worried that 
for perhaps obvious reasons, um, that people of great ambition and selfish motives would take office. And most Americans know that part of the way they tried to keep that from happening was to institute all sorts of checks and balances and separation of powers and a federal system. But one of the other things you see thoughtful political thinkers writing about pretty early on is they make all of those restraints on public office visible. And their hope is that in part, that people of great ambition who want to make lots of money, who want to do things their own way, will be more excited about private industry than they will about public office. I say to my students sometimes, if you really want to make a lot of money and have everything go your way, whose job do you want? You know, Donald Trump's or Jeff Bezos's? <laughs> what are you going to do? Become a congressman where you have to work with hundreds of other people or a CEO? One of the things that troubles me about Trump is that Trump seems to have not understood the restraints on his own executive authority. But I do think that one of the things that we can think about is how do we make public office less appealing to the kind of people who pursue public office mostly for themselves and for the enhancement of their own brand or image or to line their pockets or what have you? My colleague at The Constitutionalist, Greg Wiener, has suggested that we really need to an empowered and emboldened Congress in large measure to achieve that. And I think he's probably partially right about that, but that's part of the reason that I think we should try to mute the influence of money in politics. Um, the less money that is to be had in and through politics, the more that people who are interested mostly in making money for themselves will do something other than assume constitutional uh, positions of leadership. Do you think that as the parties have gotten polarized, that it's made the office more interesting to ideologues, which have a different kind of motivation and a different kind of danger? Uh, certainly. One of the things that I've been concerned about for decades is the decline in membership of American political parties. And that's because when fewer and fewer Americans are left in the political parties, at this point, only about a third of Americans identify as Democrats and only about a third of Americans identify as Republicans, the people who are left in those parties tend to be more extreme and more ideological. And then there's a whole third of Americans who see themselves outside those categories, but don't have the institutional capacity to really move the parties toward the center or towards positions of greater moderation. So for sure, there are certainly more ideologues, though I would say that part of the structural reason for that too, and I'm certainly not the first person to say this, is the increasingly convoluted gerrymandering done in states to ensure non-competitive districts. Um, the more you gerrymander districts to be, this is a Republican district and this is going to be a safe Democratic district. And the more you do that, the more that you're likely to get real extremists representing those more extreme districts. Um, I am really interested in some of the proposals to change redistricting mechanisms to make more districts competitive across the parties as opposed to competitive within the parties and therefore tests for increasing levels of ideological purity and extremism. I remember an article by Mayhew about vanishing marginal districts. I don't know if you've seen that, but like histograms of where uh, the different districts fall and how few there are now in the middle compared to 
what it was like, say, in the early 60s. That's right. And that's that's why we can now look at maps and say, well, really, only these 20 races are competitive. That's something that I think, to the extent that uh, lawmakers can take action to try to address some of the structural problems that allowed Trump and Trumpism to come to the fore, I, I think looking at those kinds of issues is really important. Who is writing about the current challenges to our democracy that you think is is really writing important apt stuff about it well to be honest we're in a moment given how unsettled the current political moment is where i really appreciate mostly the work of brave investigative journalists who are putting themselves in the middle um, of some of these moments and scenes and communities and helping us to understand what's going on just by describing it. Um, so at least in the last few weeks, I have toggled mostly between returning to the enduring texts of American political thought, the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, authors like Alexis de Tocqueville, authors like W.E.B. Du Bois, between looking at serious investigative accounts of what's going on on the ground. It's going to be a while before it's fully unraveled, but it is. there's a lot more to it, I think, than first met the eye. There was more of a plot. There was more of an of a intention, it sounds like, to even assassinate. And you know, once the FBI is done with it and the Congress is done with it, we're going we're gonna to hear a lot more. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, political authors before all of these shenanigans happened is Nick Bucola, who recently wrote a book about the 1965 debate between uh, James Baldwin and William F. Buckley Jr. And one of the things that Nick says that I take to heart that's our responsibility as political theorists is that it's our responsibility to help people slow down and think slowly about politics. And I think that's right. And in some ways, I think that's why I'm hesitant to recommend somebody giving immediate commentary in the middle of the moment, because I think this is an important moment, precisely because it's it's a sort of moment of melee to try to slow ourselves down and look at it carefully. And I do think, like you said, it's going to be a long time before we fully are able, and we'll never fully be able, but before we're better able to understand uh, the moment that we're in. You mentioned Baldwin, and I know you've written about him, and he made his way into the book of yours I, I read. What is it about his work that you find so attractive? Baldwin strives to be relentlessly honest, and he does so in a way that I think forces you as a reader, if you're reading him correctly, to aspire to that same level of relentless honesty. I read a line in... Congressman Raskin's memorial tribute to his son, who recently took his own life. And the line was about how his son had been attracted to the description of someone as she tried to live as if the truth were true. And I was so taken by that line. And it so very much reminds me of Baldwin. I came to Baldwin in graduate school where I was studying lots of political science that didn't really speak to me and didn't really correspond to politics as I understood its practice. And then I was lucky enough to take a course with Cornell West and Eddie Glaude in which we read Baldwin. And I thought for the first time in graduate school, I was reading something 
that spoke directly to me and was trying to speak truthfully as opposed to trying to speak in a way to get tenure. And I have never been able to put Baldwin down since. And Baldwin, in turn, convinced me of something that's really important to all the work I've done since, which is that literature and art are integral to the study of politics generally, but in particular to the study of American politics. Where would you put yourself politically? That's an interesting question. I sometimes will call myself a radical in the sense of radical means being interested in getting to the root of things and thinking about things from the ground up. At other times, I would describe myself in, in other ways. I don't know that I have an answer that I like um, to harp upon. Let me put it this way. I think that part of the problem in contemporary American politics is the insistence on labeling our political beliefs and categorizing them into boxes. I particularly get nervous about, say, my students' enthusiasm for calling themselves progressive, which they use to signal a number of admirable you know, political ambitions. But as W.E.B. Du Bois wrote, 125 years ago, saying that you're attached to progress has not always been a sign of being on the side of justice or equality or of truth in American political history. So I'm ner I'm always nervous when it comes to describing myself politically because I'm always nervous about political labels and the way in which they can preclude rather than open up venues for conversation. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially, I mean, on campus, it's widely noted the the nexus between progressive consensus and some elements of being able to have reasoned argument. Do you see that at Pomona? Do you worry about it? Sure. I see that at Pomona and I worry about that. You know, I, I worry a lot because Pomona is an exceptionally elite institution. Um, though our students come, I think 25% of our students are first generation college students. It's um, highly, highly selective. It's highly, highly selective. So we get, we're one of the few colleges in the country that not only meets all, accepts people without reference to their ability to pay and then guarantees to meet the financial need of everyone who attends and also gives all of that um, financial assistance in the form of uh, grants as opposed to loans. Um, so we're need blind, no loan. We have an extraordinarily diverse um, student body. And I get worried when the signal that they get when they enter this um, elite institution is that we are progressives. And that progressive always seems to me to connote a kind of sense of superiority to people that you don't agree with. Like, I have progressed beyond you. <laughs> I am for the side of moving toward the future and you are not. And I worry that students pick up that language and perhaps as a broader um, learning to think of their membership in an elite educational institution as a signal that they're somehow better than other people. Um, I worry all the time about the ways in which elite institutions, especially ones that presume to be sort of meritocratic in one way or another, can actually undermine in practice a real commitment to human equality. Um, and so what I say to my students all the time is, you know, think of, you always have to think of the one person you know who's smarter and better and more deserving of you that's not going to a place like Pomona College, um, lest you ever make the mistake of thinking that because you go to a fancy school, you're better uh, in some fundamental way um, than any other human being. 
what about the question of students preparing themselves to be, I don't know, introspective and educated and broadly in a liberal arts sense versus trained vocationally? I have a college-age daughter, and I worry about kind of an ethos that I hear at her very good school, even, and, and other places about that people being so interested, like you were maybe in that first job, in, in consulting, in, in things that are, you know, are going to provide you the right size house rather than, I don't know, the path that is most valuable to society, maybe in some way or another. Yeah, I, this is something that I think um, we, we struggle with a lot because especially it's especially a problem for students who don't come from professional class backgrounds. If you are the first person in your family to go to college and you are your family's shot at social, economic, political, uh, cultural advancement, absolutely you want to get a well-paying job and it's um harder to take the attitude, you know, just take, you know, this class that you've never heard of in a subject that you can't imagine being tied to a profession. It's just a lot harder for us as professors and at institutions to, to make that kind of pitch to our students for really understandable reasons. What I like to talk to my own students about is to say that it's a really false dichotomy to think that there is liberal arts education, you know, over here, and that's people playing around who are eventually going to inherit, you know, daddy's art museum to curate. Um, and that on the other side, you know, there are jobs that will, you know, there are passive study that train you with real skills for jobs. If you actually look at positions of leadership in pretty much uh, any industry or um, field of occupation that you can. They tend to be jobs that require excellent communication skills, that require excellent ability to work with other people, and in particular to work with people who have different ideas and backgrounds than you do. They tend to be jobs uh, that require a certain kind of uh, multicultural fluency. They tend to be jobs that require the ability to think creatively and to do the well unexpected thing or to take the unexpected perspective. And that's what we learn. Um, and that's what we teach uh, in liberal arts colleges. It's been said many times before, especially in an economy that's changing so rapidly, you can't teach people a set of skills and assume that those skills are still going to be, quote unquote, marketable a few years later. Um, one of my colleagues in computer science said to me pretty early on, if all we did in computer science at Pomona was teach them how to program in a specific, currently market hot language, none of them would have jobs in five years because that language is no longer going to be the dominant language of programming. So instead, even when we teach computer science at a place like Pomona, the emphasis is on how to, teaching people how to think in a broader sense, um, about the languages of programming and to think on a much more foundational level. And that, of course, in the short and the long term gives you much, not just much more flexibility in terms of employment, but also just much more longer guarantees of the habits of mind that will make you not just a good employee, but a good leader, transformer, agitator, resistor, actor uh, in the world. Uh, I note in passing that um, both the president of Moderna and the uh, 
person who President Biden has appointed to head the COVID vaccine rollout are Amherst College graduates. It's not that Amherst College graduates, you know, thousands of people each year. It's that I think at small liberal arts colleges, people really get a lot of practice um, in thinking through new and difficult challenges all the time. And what is coronavirus but a new and difficult challenge? What are you working on now? Um, I'm thinking about working, well, I'm working mostly at this point as an editor of the journal American Political Thought. Um, But I think my next project is going to be about Americans who have had the aspiration to burn it all down in one way or another. In part, for so many of the reasons that we're talking about, I really want to explore both the history and the psychology um, and the kind of political context of the many movements in American history that we've had by people who understanding themselves to be patriots and committed to the Constitution try to burn down or destroy the institutions of American government. I think it's a really interesting problem and paradox. And so I'm excited to work um, somewhere in that kind of area or problem or space. Well, I look forward to reading what you put together. Is there a question that I should have asked that I didn't? I don't think so. I try not to have any priors going in. It's safer with me. (laughs) (laughs) I figured that out after listening to a a number of your, of the episodes. I don't, I don't think so. Nothing, nothing springs to mind. Okay. Well, it's, it's an honor to talk to you. That was Susan McWilliams Barnt of Pomona College. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.